Okay, I believe we're ready to begin. We're going to continue our studies in John's Gospel, Chapter 4. The title of this message this morning is uh, You Do Not Find God, God Finds You. You do not find God, God finds you. Um, I know there are people who will read the scripture and they'll say, well, I don't see how that could be true because the Lord says, uh, you shall search for me and you shall find me when you search for me with all your heart. Well, the Bible does say that. But what is the method for searching him and finding him? It's in the book that he has given us. And I'm going to tell you, without this book right here, you'd never find him. Uh, a finite mind cannot find the infinite God. There's no way. And so God who has more of an invested interest in saving our souls than anyone you could imagine has inspired and preserved a book. It's his own biography of himself so that you might know him. And apart from this book, there is no way that you can know God, no way you can find God apart from this book. And so, as I love to say, he loves us more than we could ever know. I like to say that because of the truth of it. And he has taken the initiative, and we can be so thankful that he has, because he passionately wants us to be saved and none to be lost. He's not willing that any should perish. They all come to repentance. And so um, one of the reasons I'm giving this message, this title, and we've given this chapter several titles so far, but one of the reasons is because of what we read in verse 26, if you'll just jump ahead and look at that, John chapter 4 and verse 26 Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And God, find, God finds us. We do not find him. He found this woman. He must needs go through Samaria and discover himself to this woman. Or this woman would have never come to know who he was. And what's true in this chapter is true of every single soul that has ever been saved. Now think about it. Think about this with me. And let's look at the proof that what is being said is true from God's word. Who saved Adam and Eve? Was there some church somewhere? Some preacher somewhere? Another human somehow or other that knew about God? Some missionary? Some Bible teacher? Uh, who was it that saved Adam 
and Eve. Well, it was God. Uh, he is the one that discovered himself to them as the Savior, as the only one that could save them. There's no one that could save us but him. And what was true in the book of Genesis is true throughout the entire Bible. This is why uh, Brother Jed, in his message the other night uh, on the book of Jonah, the second chapter makes a statement that uh, is a reaffirmation of what I've just said. There's a statement in there that says, salvation is of the Lord. It's of the Lord. It's not by some work on our part or some intelligence on our part because we do not have any intelligence. The Bible is very clear that man, apart from God, would be ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So what I'm telling you is uh, pretty self-evident based on the scriptures themselves. And so this a study of this passage right here is critically important. Um, I, was, I was doing some reading, uh, some reading of some other things this morning, I don't know how I even got onto it, but something that impressed me many, many years ago was a court trial in uh, Dayton, Tennessee. It was in 1925. It's called the Scopes Monkey Trial. Most people have heard about that. And there were two uh, very gifted men, gifted in terms of oratory, oratorical skills. Uh, William Jennings Bryan was the attorney. He was a lawyer, but he was a Christian. And in that court case, he argued against the teaching of evolution. And the Scopes Monkey Trial actually was involved a teacher by the name of Scopes that um, really had not been teaching evolution. Uh, but the question had occurred as to why it shouldn't be taught. And so the whole trial was about whether or not evolution should be taught in the public school system in Tennessee, in the state of Tennessee. And so the trial was in Dayton, Tennessee. And so the two attorneys, uh, one being William Jennings Bryan, argued for creation being taught and being the only thing taught in the public school system. But another oratorical highly skilled man by the name of Clarence Darrow argued for the teaching of evolution. And again, I can't remember why I even started thinking about this again this morning, but I, I did. And 
I decided, as a matter of fact, I spent a little bit of time doing some research, and I was I became curious about why Clarence Darrow would take such a position at that time. And so we're talking about, it was 1859 that the uh, book Origin of Species was written by, by uh, Darwin and uh, Charles Darwin. And uh, it began to make inroads into people's way of thinking. And the thing that's so appealing about Charles Darwin and his theory of biological evolution is because if you can convince people that there's a question about God even being there, does he really even exist, then there's an automatic transfer of authority away from God and this book and how God thinks and what God says, it is shifted away from him onto the individual. And so it becomes our responsibility to decide with our intelligence and our integrity and our personal goodness that we're all born with to decide what is good and evil and what is right and wrong. Now, that is very appealing to the nature of man. I mean, think about it. What if, as a parent, you went home one day and uh, here you got these teenagers that they have just become teens. Those are individuals that have discovered that they have a free will, a free will. And as a parent, you sit down at the table with them and you say, now look, I respect your free will. And from now on, Whatever you want, that's the way it's going to be. If you want to eat whatever is on the table, fine. If you don't, that's fine. If you want to get up and go out the door and go wherever, you can do that. You are free to do anything you want to do. Can you imagine your children turning to you and saying, Oh, I don't want to do that. Can you imagine a child saying, but mom, dad, I'm not smart enough to know what to do. I can't imagine a child doing that. I know one thing, if my parents had told me, anything you want to do, that's up to you. You're free. You're an individual. You're gonna, you have personal responsibility. You're going to have to decide what choices you're going to make in life. I'd have, I'd have thought that was wonderful. I sure would. Because it's so basic to our nature. 
by nature, we think we're good. We do. We do not think we're evil. Nobody does. No one does. Everyone, every day, thinks that whatever thought they have is most likely right. Whatever I would choose in life is going to be a right choice. And that's why children go to their parents when the parents say, you cannot do that. And the response you're always going to get is, why? Why? And so the child challenges the parent. It doesn't matter how much it's cloaked in wisdom. The child is always going to challenge the parent with a, a nature that wants to believe that whatever we think is right. This is why Charles Darwin was so successful in that book is because he wrote what we really want to believe. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. One of the most appealing things in the world is the fact that God is not the definer of right and wrong and good and evil. You are. That's very appealing. Very appealing. The only problem with Adopting that as your worldview is um, a lot of what we think is right does not turn out to be right. Just like God said, there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end there are the ways of death. So our intelligence is really not that reliable. But we've got a nature that wants to believe that it is. And so we'll go with it. We'll go with it because we love the idea that the way we think is percentage-wise up around the 90s and better percentage that we have the intelligence to know how to make good choices. And so there was a little bit of a snag in Darwin's theory in terms of the capability of man, but it completely flopped at the far end of it when you come to the end of your life. Because if the full responsibility of knowing is on ourselves when God tells us, you'll be ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, then you're going to die with no answer as to what comes next. How am I going to get out of the box? There's no answer. No one knows. No one. But Darwin's theory sold because man in his basic nature wants to believe that we are adequate 
in terms of the way we think and what we can do in creating a paradise life on earth and even though I do not know whether there's a God out there or not, if he is love, as he says he is, and all the preachers preach, then there's no way, no matter how I live, that a good God could throw a good person into hell. Folks, do you realize that the vast majority of the people in churches today believe exactly what I just said? Do we realize the impact of Charles Darwin and the evil, the evil of that teaching? Do we realize historically the damage of Charles Darwin and Clarence Darrow on the United States of America. Do we realize what it is? How disastrous those two personalities were? Folks, it's unbelievable when you study these things. Now, in this church, we've been blessed over the years because from the very beginning of this ministry, We've had teachers that understand the value of this book. And that is that you cannot find God ever. God has to find you. And what we're reading here in this chapter is about this. It's about the fact that we're not as smart as we think we are. We have these little puny, finite minds that understand so precious little about anything. We should never be proud of what we know, no matter how much in the way of credentials we ever achieve in the way of education or degrees. The measure of a person's intelligence is really a consideration, a careful consideration of what we do not know, not what we know. I mean, put on a scale what you know. And then on the other side, put what you do not know. And here's what will happen. Boom. <laughs> what you do not know is enormous. Enormous. Compared to what we know. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, we know nothing yet as we ought to know. We know nothing yet as we ought to know. We are profoundly profoundly ignorant.
And so I went on to the web and I, I looked up some things about Clarence Darrow. And um, he wrote an article. He spoke at the Freedom From Religion Foundation Incorporation uh, with this title as his uh, subject matter, Why I Am an Agnostic. By Clarence, Clarence Darrow. So I printed it out. I decided I'd just read it, see what he had to say. And he starts out, an agnostic is a doubter, a doubter. It's not somebody who says there is no God. That's atheism. An agnostic is somebody that says God is unknown and he's unknowable. That's basically what an agnostic is. He's unknown and he's unknowable. He may be there, he may not be there. I don't know. That's what he's saying. And so this was his belief in life. He said, I am an agnostic as to the question of God. Well, why did he say that? Because he was proud of his own intelligence. He was proud of his oratorical skills, his education. And what he had tried to do with his education uh, and his own perception of himself as being a good man, an intelligent man, uh, he came to the conclusion that he would be an agnostic as to the question of God because he could not find God. This goes back to why I'm giving this chapter, John's Gospel chapter 4, the title, You Do Not Find God, He Finds You. Clarence Dara is admitting that with all of his education, he has not been able to find God. Enough to embrace him. And the message of this book is exactly that. If you try with education to find God, you're going to fail. You'll be ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the truth is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And then he says, I think that it is impossible for the human mind to believe in an object or thing unless it can form a mental picture of such object or thing. Well, I got to thinking about that. I mean, I know kind of where he's going with those kinds of thoughts because I believe that faith without evidence uh, is really pretty impossible to embrace. You have to have a reason to believe anything. 
You have to have reasons that you can relate to. And so I can kind of understand where he's going with the, the, the statement. I think it is impossible for the human mind to believe in an object or thing unless it can form a mental picture of such object or thing. That's just a, a complicated way of saying I believe that Faith has to have evidence. It has to have something that you can look at as evidence that would cause you to conclude faith. Well, I can kind of understand that, but think about this. What kind of object did Oppenheimer have in mind and Albert Einstein when they theorized about the atom? You can't see an atom. You can't really experience an atom other than with the mind as far as a theory is concerned. But you do not have specific evidence that can form a mental picture that can cause you to believe in it. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not a scientist and I'm not a very smart person, the truth be known. I am profoundly ignorant. But I can tell you this. I've done a little bit of reading. I've read a little bit of Albert Einstein. don't understand him much at all. Just little leanings here and there and kind of follow what he's saying. I've got books in my office that have a lot of Oppenheimer's thoughts in it and I've tried and labored to understand what it was that resulted in them coming up with the atomic bomb. But in all of my reading there was a lack of certainty about any of it. And when they exploded the first atomic bomb, they had no real idea what was going to happen. They didn't know whether it was going to start a chain reaction and how far it was going to go. They had no idea. No idea. But these men, based on theory based on very limited knowledge of what they were going to do put together an atomic bomb <clears throat> they sure did and everybody became a believer after it exploded And Japan certainly became a believer when those two bombs were dropped in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. But what people understood in advance to a great extent contradicts what Clarence Darrow had to say here in this particular 
study. I don't want to spend all our, our time talking about this. You can look it up yourself. Um, and go on the internet and just type out why I am an agnostic by Clarence Darrow. And read this pitiful uh, effort to have a following. To where? I wrote down in the title here why I am an agnostic. I wrote why I am likely in hell. That's what I wrote. Why I am likely in hell. Why, in all likelihood, William Jennings Bryan is in heaven. William Jennings Bryan died at the age of 65. And he died shortly after the trial. And he was in Dayton, Tennessee. Right shortly after the trial. He died in his sleep. I think it's called apoplexy, which is something like a stroke. He died in his sleep. He was buried at Arlington Cemetery. And part of his epitaph was, he kept the faith. He kept the faith. What faith? Well, it wasn't the faith of Darwin. There is human faith, and that's what Darwin had. He had human faith. But agnosticism is really um, a description of human faith in that human faith always has an element of doubt. Always. There is no eternal security with human faith. It doesn't exist. And the reason is because the finite mind cannot exhaustively investigate an infinite universe. Well, if you cannot systematically investigate an infinite universe then there might be some variable out there somewhere that you've never thought about that would radically change your conclusion. And so the deal is, if you can't in exhaustively investigate the entire universe, then you can never know truth. There's only one in the universe that can exhaustively investigate the realm of creation. And that is the eternal God who has infinite wisdom. God knows his universe. Every molecule, every atom, every electron proton, neutron. He knows the hair on our head. He knows the blades of grass out here in this field and in the whole world. 
There isn't a single bird that falls to the ground without his notice of every single one. There's a lot of birds out there, a lot of birds. Is there anything that God does not know? And the answer is, thou knowest all things. That's what the disciples said of Jesus Christ. You know everything. That's a true statement. He did. What do we know? So Clarence Darrow was an agnostic, and he rightly defined himself as an agnostic because he didn't know what the truth was. He believed it was unknown and unknowable. He was absolutely right. And the reason is because a finite mind cannot find the infinite God. But this book teaches us that the infinite God can find you. A lost sheep. He can find you. And he loves us. <laughs> he sure does. He loves us, and he's not willing that any should perish. This is an amazing book, the Bible. And this chapter that we're reading, folks, I'm telling you, if we read it carefully, if we just slow down and think about every word and what God is telling us here, I think that you will arrive at the same conclusion that I did. You cannot find God, but God can find you. He sure can. And I'm so thankful for that day that he found me. Because I was a lost sheep. And I was in that circle of people that were trying desperately to convince me that I was a good person and that all I needed to do was get that degree, get educated, and make decisions for myself the rest of my life. And as sure as there is a God in heaven that is a loving God, he would never cast a good person like you into hell. No matter what you do down here, you're not that bad. Basically, you're a good, yeah, you make a few mistakes here and there, a few mistakes. But God would never cast a 99% good person into hell. And most people view themselves as being at least that. Every once in a while you run into some that are maybe 80%, but... Even criminals that kill people justify what they do and rationalize it in their mind as being the act of a good person or they would not have done it. They were absolutely justified. And so, um, let's go to Let's go to John's Gospel here and let's remember just a few things that
are important to remember. John the Baptist baptized with water. But that's not good enough. If that's as far as you go in the scripture and you never make it to Pentecost, you're missing a major message in the Bible. Now listen to me carefully because if you don't, you'll begin to think that I'm a heretic. But God never intended for you to just come to the cross and realize that he died for your sin and that his blood washes away all sin. When the Apostle John made it very clear that even after you do get saved and you're genuinely, genuinely saved, do not go out here and say that you're without sin. Do not do that. 1 John chapter 1. Do not go out there and say that you have not sinned. But if you do sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us that sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. <laughs> Folks, the shed blood of Calvary's cross takes care of the transgression thing and the restitution for the criminal act of rebelling against God. And that's what it does. But if a person died, and that's all they understood about the message of the Bible, then what would we be like if God took us to heaven? And all he had done was die for us on the cross, shed his blood, and forgive us our sins. Then the gospel would be that when we get to heaven, we would continue to sin, but because his blood was shed for us, it would still cover our transgressions past, present, and future throughout all eternity to come but we will be forever sinning against God, but forgiven. Folks, if you go no further than the cross of Calvary, you are missing, very likely, salvation itself. Salvation itself. When John the Baptist said, He that comes after me, he will baptize you in the Holy Ghost. Folks, if we don't understand the importance of that statement, you could very likely lose your soul forever if you said, I don't believe it. I don't believe you have to know it and understand it to go to heaven. But I believe when somebody teaches you this truth, if you're genuinely saved, you'll say, wow, I understand that. That makes all the sense in the world. Folks, Salvation is not based on how much you know and the quantity of things that you know and can explain. It's based on your attitude toward the truth when somebody tells you what it is. And that's why it's important to 
sit here and listen and think very carefully about what you're hearing right now. Because I'm telling you that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, the scripture is very clear. If you do not have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, you are none of His. That's being lost. That's to be lost. I don't care how much you know. What equips us for heaven is not just the cross. That took care of the transgression. But it did not prepare us for an eternal relationship with a holy God. To go to heaven, you have to be holy. You have to be unblameable and unreprovable in his sight for all eternity to come. You cannot sin one time, ever. Because if you sin once, you're guilty of everything. That's what James said, James chapter 2, verse 10. If you sin at one point, you're guilty of all. And so that brings us to an understanding of Pentecost and the critical importance of understanding Pentecost. Well, what is Pentecost? Pentecost is the fulfillment of what John promised, or the Lord promised in John chapter 14. When he said, I'm going to depart. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And when I go, I'll come back and receive you unto myself. That where I am there, you may be also. But he goes on in that chapter. And he says, essentially, I'm not going to leave you alone. I will never leave you or forsake you. He didn't say those words in that chapter, but the thought is what's in those words. But he said, I'm going to send another comforter, another comforter. And it's very clear that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that John was telling about, talking about, baptism of the Holy Ghost. If you just get water baptism, if you just come to understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that's all you know, folks, let me tell you something. That is not the hope of heaven. It is not. The hope of heaven is understanding the baptism of the Holy Ghost. What is it? It's the gift of his life to be your life. That's what it is. And we better understand it at Calvary Memorial Church. Our children have got to understand this point. When we receive the Holy Spirit, the Lord said he will be with you and he will be in you. Why did he say it that way? Because we have a problem with the world. And the Holy Spirit is going to be with us to deal with it. But that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is not out there. Even though God is going to take care of that. 
because he is going to enable us to overcome the world. That's what he said. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And I'm going to help you overcome the world, which is the influence of the world which you love. He said, love not the world. But God knows that we do love the world, but he's going to help us not love it. But he goes on to say, he's going to be in you. And that is where the rubber absolutely meets the road. Because the only problem any of us have is in us. It's in our mind and in our heart. This is what the Lord said to <clears throat> Satan in Ezekiel 28. Until iniquity was found in thee, in thee, God has to deal with that. And the way he deals with it is teaching us in this book that we have to die to everything that we are on the inside and receive as our life, his life. It's the Holy Spirit. Now, folks, when we're resurrected from the dead, and this is the beauty of this book, folks, do you realize that because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the giving of his life, it will be impossible for us in resurrection to ever sin against God in one point. That is the gospel. Anything short of that is not the gospel, folks. If I could possibly sin against that lovely God, that innocent God, if I could sin against him again, I don't know where you, how you could get gospel out of it. If God's blood was shed just to take care of the sin thing and pay the debt, that in and of itself is not the gospel, folks. I'm sorry. If you want to really understand the gospel, you've got to go to Pentecost. Pentecost. And I believe with all my soul the reason the Lord separated those two events by 50 days is so that we would one at a time focus on the beauty of the cross because it took care of our, our crime. It, it enabled us to provide restitution to the father for the crime against his son and that we are offering up his shed blood which takes care of sin past, present, and future. But that's not the end of the gospel. The other side of the coin is 50 days later. It's the giving of his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. That is the giving of his life. And what is his life? Holy. Unblameable. 
and unreprovable. Jesus Christ is the only person that God the Father ever said that to. And we have to have his life for him to be able to say that to us. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. We need to be able to articulate these things when we're witnessing the people. We sure do. And I'm certain, you know, there are people, maybe here in this room, maybe out there, people that listen in, that would say, this is awfully complicated. No, it isn't. It's not complicated at all. If you'll just sit down and think about it, and pray and ask the Lord to deliver you from the tradition of men and what is traditionally taught in churches. What is traditionally taught in churches brings people short of the gospel. You're not saved and have the hope of heaven just because you get up and walk down the aisle, take the preacher's hand, get him to pronounce you saved, get baptized. And then going out there in the world and somehow or other thinking it was, okay, that's the simplicity of it. No, that's not the simplicity of it. The simplicity of it is the giving of his life to be your life. And these people that are going out here saying, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. But they go out that door and the life that you see in them is not the life of the Son of God. Some of them are out there doing all kinds of things that Christ would not do. I'm thankful for the cross of Calvary and my understanding of the blood of Christ because I cannot go out there and be perfect and I do sin. And as long as I live in this body of death, I'm going to sin. That's what Romans chapter 7 is all about. The Apostle Paul said, after he had written all these letters that we study, these mysteries hidden in ages past, Paul's confession was, how to perform that which is good, I find not. And there's a law in me. And I don't know what to do about it, but when I want to do right, I do what's wrong. And then he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he jumps into the 8th chapter. The 8th chapter of Romans. And he says, I thank God. Through Jesus Christ my Lord. And so when you study the 8th chapter. You understand 
why you should not follow the flesh, but follow the spirit. What spirit? The spirit that was given to us at Pentecost. That will enable us to overcome the world. That will enable us to die to what we are when, and enter into what Paul meant when he said, I'm crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That's Pentecost. This is not complicated. It's very simple. And I think even in experience, we know it. We know it. I can't believe this. Oh, well. Time, again, goes so fast. I didn't really even get into my notes for this week. We'll have to do this next week. Uh, I want you to focus on verse 10. Uh, where he says, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is, who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Who it is. You need to put parentheses around that if you just knew who it is that's talking to you. Folks, the Lord is talking to us in his precious word right here. If we just knew who it is that's talking to us. We cannot find God, but God can find us. Let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer. Jim Picacus, would you just miss his brother?